this morning. We're going to continue in a series that we've been going through for a couple months now. Um, but if you are new, uh, this is not a bad time to jump in because uh, each week is not necessarily connected to the week before it. Um, we're diving into some of the most difficult things in the Bible that Jesus had to say, some of the most difficult red-letter texts that you encounter in your Bibles, if indeed you have one of those red-letter text versions of the Bible that we do believe that Jesus said some things that are easy to swallow, right? Things like um, asking it will be given to you. That would be great inside of a fortune cookie. Uh, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Most of us could use that phrase on a daily basis. But Jesus also said some things like love your enemies. Things like deny yourself and take up your cross and, and follow me. And so I've said this over and over again, and I'm going to continue to hammer it home until we get to the end of this series, that if Jesus is nothing more than a good teacher, then you can just take the things that are easy to swallow and hang on to those, um, put, a, put it up on your bulletin board or your bathroom mirror as motivational um, you know, phraseology, and you can discard the stuff that you don't like. You can just rip those pages out of your Bible proverbially. But if Jesus is who he says he is, then we've got to take seriously everything that came out of his mouth. And Jesus never professed to be a good teacher and nothing more. Jesus professed to be able to forgive you of your sins. Jesus professed to be able to give you eternal life. Jesus professed that if you've seen him, you've seen God the Father. So Jesus doesn't leave any space for call me good teacher and nothing more. Jesus essentially leaves room for one of three options, which is this. We can either call him a raving lunatic for saying things like that, we can call him a bold-faced liar for knowing that he wasn't telling the truth when he spoke those things into existence. Or we can call him who he professes to be, which is Lord and God. And so the prayer for you as we work through this series week in and week out, if you're not a Christian, if you're sitting on the fence, is that you would discard this idea that Jesus is nothing more than a good teacher, nothing more than a moral philosopher, and that you would be sensible enough to call him either a raving lunatic or a liar from the depths of hell, or that you would profess to call him who he professes that he is, which is namely Lord and God. And if you're a Christian, the hope through this series is that we would find ourselves in glad submission to our good king more and more as we work our way through each of these statements throughout the course of this series, that we wouldn't just um, take in the things that are easy to swallow, but that we would be receptive of and bend our knee to King Jesus in everything that, that he says. And so this week we're going to dive into... Uh, Matthew's gospel account will be in chapter 5 this morning. If you have a Bible, you can go there. We'll be in verses 21 through 26. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from under one of the seats in front of you in the basket underneath that seat and flip open to Matthew chapter 5 in that Bible. Take that Bible with you if you don't own a Bible. That's our gift to you. We're happy that you would take that and explore the truth claims of Christianity with us. I love that song that we just sang. I've never heard that song personally. I don't know about you, but those words, I won't relent until I have it all, all of your heart, essentially. That's where Jesus is going this morning. Um, Jesus isn't content with externalism. He's not content with a righteousness that manifests itself only on the outside, but rather he's after all of you. And so, um, very appropriate song that we just sang. I hope that, that those words kind of uh, rummage through your mind as we're working our way through this particular passage of Scripture this morning. Let me read all of the passage in its entirety, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, and we'll pray and we'll, we'll get to work. It says this, beginning in verse 21, Jesus is speaking, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. 
So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for entering into our world, for clothing yourself in flesh, for setting up a tent among us, for tabernacling among us, and for speaking life uh, into our lives with your very words. We give thanks for verses 21 through 26 of Matthew's gospel account in chapter 5 this morning. Pray that as a result of our working through this passage that um, you would plant one or two more flags of dominion in our hearts as you work your way towards grabbing hold of all of it. We love you. We know that this can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come in power this morning and do what only you can do. Uh, We lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of the Son, Jesus. Amen. So this morning's passage is what St. Augustine originally coined the phrase, Sermon on the Mount. Um, It's perhaps one of the most famous passages of Scripture. It's most certainly the lengthiest section of red-letter text in all of your Bible. So if you're looking down at one of those red-letter versions, you probably see almost nothing but red letters right now. The Sermon on the Mount is unquestionably a treasure trove of truth. And and this morning, we're just going to look at one gem in the treasure chest, essentially. Um, As we pick up things in verse 21, Jesus has just delivered his blessed R statements, uh, what we refer to commonly as the Beatitudes. If you were around back in the fall, all of our congregations as Crosspoint Church went through uh, a series on the Beatitudes. Fantastic. If you weren't around, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon series. Um, If you you really want uh, God to have it all, all of your heart, fantastic series to go back and listen to. Um, In in verses 17 through 20 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has just made the statement that he's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus is saying that everything that the Old Testament had to say was foreshadowing my coming, that all of the Bible professes me to be the hero, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well, and and not just in the um, prophetic sections of the Old Testament that talk about Jesus coming on the scene eventually, but rather all of the Old Testament. um, When you look at the sacrificial system, you're, you're meant to uh, look forward to the coming of the true sacrifice Jesus who would die for the sins of his people. When you look at the temple and the, the establishment of the priesthood, you're meant to look forward to Jesus as the fulfillment, the true temple, uh, our high priest and advocate who sits at the right hand of God the Father, mediating, pleading for us on our behalf, that when you look at the story of the Passover and you see the blood smeared on the doorposts and the wrath of God passing over those people when he sees the blood, you're meant to look forward to the true Passover lamb, Jesus, as God's wrath passes over us when he sees the blood of Jesus covering us. And I could go on and on and on. The entire Old Testament points to Jesus as the hero of the entire Bible, um, which is why I 
press often that if you've never read it, you really should read the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you don't even have a framework for that, if you think that the Bible is broken up into two different um, categories and one talks about this angry God of wrath and the other talks about the Jesus who now comes to save the day, if, if you're um, seeing a disconnect from the Old and the New Testaments, you really should pick up that, that children's storybook Bible and at least read through it once and um, I promise you there's a strong likelihood that like the Grinch, your heart will grow at least three sizes if you do that. So you should definitely, that's your homework this week. Amazon Prime can get it to you in two days if you don't have it. And I know that there's at least one copy at the Books A Million in the Avenue. I saw it last week. So you should check that out. Jesus makes this crazy statement in verse 20 saying this, and this probably should actually be the passage. This is the this is the uh, verse that we really wish Jesus hadn't said. If you look at verse 20 leading into this morning's passage, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That, that, that's the phrase we really wish Jesus hadn't said. When, when we follow suit in the verses that follow verse 20, what Jesus is doing is he's given us several case studies as to what he means when he says that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. In fact, six different times he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and each of those six times that Jesus says that, he's trying to unpack for us what he means in verse 20. Jesus hasn't come to undermine the law of Moses. He's come to fulfill it. He's come to teach us what it truly means to live according to God's law. Now, as we jump in this morning, I think we need to, to lay a little bit of groundwork as we dive in because Jesus is going to point us back to the Ten Commandments, namely the six, that you shall not murder. And he's going to unpack what that really means in the broad sense of, of that type of language. And so I think we need to uh, lay a little bit of groundwork in terms of the use of the law in the Scriptures. When you open up your Bible and you see phrases like, do this, don't do that. Whether it's found particularly in the Ten Commandments, you shall not, and fill in the blank with whatever that commandment uh, goes on to say, or when you read the Apostle Paul in the New Testament commanding, hey, do these things, live in this way, don't do these particular things, and you see these, these imperatives in Scripture, what are we meant to take from those? A um, little bit of Law 101 this morning to kind of set up where we're going. Um, there are three uses of the law in Scripture. So when you come across passages, phrases that... Uh, are commands that are imperatives, uh, there are three ways that we're meant to potentially view that. Number one, the law functions to restrain evil. So if you think about it, the fact that you shall not murder and that there's a liability to judgment if you do murder restrains people from murdering, right? It's not just that the human heart um, pushes against, I'm not going to do that because my heart is just so clean and good, but rather, I don't want to go to prison. So that's a good reason for me not to commit that crime, at the end of the day, I don't want to experience capital punishment. Um, we, we experienced this in our early years uh, in the classroom, right? Don't chew gum. If you do, then you get to go sit at the desk in the back of the room in Lonelyville, right? Nobody wants to sit in Lonelyville, so you don't chew gum because there are consequences. You don't act out in the way that you might be inclined to act out otherwise. So the law restrains evil. This world would be much more evil. We would see evil much more prevalent on the surface if it weren't for the law. Secondly, the law reveals our sin. So for Christian and non-Christian alike, when you encounter the imperatives in Scripture, do this, 
don't do that, you're meant to realize that there's no way I could possibly perfectly live this out. The law reveals our inability to keep it, ultimately, which is meant to drive non-Christians to Jesus at the end of the day. I love this word picture that Donald Barnhouse gives in his commentary on the Ten Commandments. He says this. He says, the law of God is like a mirror. Now, the purpose of a mirror is to reveal to you that your face is dirty. But the purpose of a mirror is not to wash your face. He goes on to say, when you look in a mirror and find that your face is dirty... You do not then reach to take the mirror off of the wall and attempt to rub it on your face as a cleansing agent. The purpose of the mirror is to drive you to the water. Makes sense, right? That would be really, really weird if every time you looked in the mirror and saw dirt on your face that you then took the mirror off of the nail or however it's hanging on your wall and just started rubbing it on your cheeks or your forehead. People would look at you like you're really strange, right? That's not what a mirror exists to do. And in the same way, the commands of God don't exist to make you clean. The, the, the idea that you could be good enough to cause God to look at you and say, clean, to declare you clean, is, is a complete lie. There's no way that you can get there. There's no way that you can um, look in that proverbial mirror and not see one speck of dirt on your soul, you might say. That the commands themselves cannot make you clean. They can point you to the water, that Jesus is the water, that Jesus cleanses us from sin and makes us clean. And so as we read this morning's passage, my hope is that if you're not a Christian, that the passage would function like a mirror for you to reveal to you the reality of the state of your soul, and that it would cause you to look to Jesus and his cross for hope and for salvation, and that if you are a Christian, that you would be reminded, because we tend to veer off of the gospel path and fall into the ditch of moralism and forget that we're approved of perfectly in Christ as we go back to even last week's passage, and we try to earn it, and we find ourselves in the land of either pride or despair in that ebb and flow rather than the confident humility that, that comes from the gospel. Right, that's the second use of the law. It restrains evil. Secondly, it reveals our sin. But lastly... It also guides our sanctification. Sanctification is just a big word for Christian growth. It, it guides your growth uh, in Christ. It guides you toward more intimacy with Jesus, looking more and more like him as you're conformed to his image, as Paul says in Romans 8. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, There is no greater mistake than to suppose that a Christian has nothing to do with the law and the Ten Commandments because he cannot be justified by keeping them. He says, the same Holy Spirit who convinces the believer of sin by the law and leads him to Christ for justification will always lead him to a spiritual use of the law as a friendly guide in the pursuit of sanctification. Uh, one, of the, one of the most beneficial teachings that I received in all of my time down in Orlando in seminary classes was uh, in a hermeneutics class. It's a biblical interpretation class. And the professor in that class um, used an analogy to explain this third use of the law to us. And he, he put it this way. He said, I've got a couple of really young kids. And he said, imagine that I take them to an ice cream shop for the first time. They've never had an ice cream cone. And so we're going to take them, me and my wife, we're going to take the kids, and we're going to go grab ice cream. Now imagine that we order a couple of ice cream cones, and we hand it, uh, the cones to our children and don't say a word and just kind of let that play out. He said, what do you think is going to happen? There, there's a litany of possibilities, right? Um, little boy could look at it and go, man, this giant white ball of ice cream looks like a baseball. 
and then just hurl it across the room so that it sticks to the wall. Um, could drop the ice cream cone. You could decide to actually eat it, but start from the bottom, and then, uh-oh, you got a real problem on your hands about three minutes later when that thing starts melting all over your clothes and the floor and everyone around you, right? And so he said, what, what I would do if I were to take my children into a situation like that is I would say to them, don't throw the ice cream cone. Don't drop the ice cream cone. Eat the ice cream cone from the top down. Right? There, there are certain things he said that I would tell my children, and, and what am I doing there? He said, I'm giving commands. Right? Do these things. Don't do these things. These are imperatives. They're commands. They're statements meant to drive you in a direction of obedience. But the goal at the end of the day is not to restrict the freedom of my children, he said, but rather to help them to enjoy the gift that I've just put in their hands. The idea is the same when you look at Scripture. If you're a Christian, that you've been given the gift of a restored relationship with your maker. And now what God is saying is, let me help you to enjoy that as best you possibly can. And so anytime you encounter a do this or a don't do that in Scripture, most certainly be reminded of the cross of Jesus Christ, that you can never possibly do that perfectly. But don't just stay there, but move forward realizing that those very same commands are meant to help you enjoy the gift of that restored relationship with the God who created you. God says live life this way and you'll get the most enjoyment out of it, which makes sense, right? God created the universe. He created you. He knows how the world works better than you and I do. So when he says do these things, don't do these things to you as a Christian, he has your best interest in mind. Jane Dalman, in his commentary on the Ten Commandments, says this. He gives a the word picture of a fish out of water. He says this, For its growth, a fish is limited to water, its proper element. Similarly, people are free like a fish in water and a bird in the air only when they listen to God's law. If you think about it, if there weren't boundaries, a fish would die, right? The fish could say, um, we got a real problem here. This whole water thing is a real infringement on my freedom, God. At the end of the day, I would really like to be out in the air and walking on land. So you, you've really pigeonholed me here. You've put some handcuffs on me and restricted my freedom and my joy. And that's oftentimes what we say about the commandments of God, right? We say, God, you're fencing me in. You're infringing on my freedom. There are many people who say, I don't want anything to do with Christianity because I'm more free outside of the bounds of Christianity. And there's a complete reverse understanding of things uh, compared to how God views the world in the way that he designed it. God's response to us is the same as it is to the fish. Without boundaries, you die. But it, within the boundaries that I've created, play. Have fun. Have a blast in this life for, for my glory and for your joy. I mean, if you, if you go back to even the garden in Genesis 1 and 2, um, are we not inclined to, to look at the one don't that God threw out there? Like we get so hung up on the, I can't believe God would say don't eat of that tree. And yet the implication is eat of the thousands of trees that exist in this garden for your joy. We completely miss it because we feel like God's infringing on our freedom. And in the same way, the fish looks out on the vast ocean. How absurd would it be for the fish to say, seriously, you're really fencing me in, God. Four oceans, all of this water to swim in, that's the best that you could possibly give me at the end of the day. See, here's the truth. This is true for me. This is true for all of us in this room. You and I are the greatest enemies of our own joy at the end of the day. 
We really are. No one will stand in the way of your joy more than you will. And you'll do so by believing that God doesn't have your best interest in mind when you come across those imperatives in Scripture. And you'll cross the boundary line and you'll drop the proverbial ice cream cone. You'll run out of air in the word picture of the fish. And you'll wonder where it all came unraveled. You see the irony of it all? In ignoring God's commands, we actually become more enslaved. We actually lose our freedom. God says, this is how you lick the ice cream cone. This is how you enjoy uh, the gift that I've given you. Obey my commands. There's plenty of water to play in. Have a blast within the boundaries that I've designed for your good. All right, that was my little Law 101 seminary class for all of us so that hopefully this passage is more helpful. And every time you encounter imperatives in the scripture, hopefully it helps out as well. In verse 21, Jesus says this. In light of everything that we just discussed, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Again, Jesus is referring to the sixth commandment here, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. That the scribes and the Pharisees had managed to reduce the law to external manifestations of sin. Remember the lawyer last week? who asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love at the end of the day? That he he was seeking to reduce the law, to to minimize the law so that he could actually obey it in his own mind, in his own heart, according to his reductionistic definitions of who neighbor is. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And we can spend the rest of the morning on, on this phrase alone. Um, In fact, last year we went through the Ten Commandments series, and we spent an entire sermon on that phrase, you shall not murder, two Hebrew words, no murder. We could spend an entire 30, 45 minutes on just that phrase. We don't have time to do that this morning. Again, you can go back and listen to the podcast from that particular series on the Ten Commandments. Um, It does bring up questions regarding capital punishment, wartime killing, suicide, euthanasia, abortion, Um, some of those very hot topics. And if you find yourself wrestling with those issues, happy to grab a cup of coffee with you. Again, any reason to do so. Happy to pass off my notes from the Ten Commandments uh, sermon on this particular uh, Sixth Commandment. Uh, There's also a really good book uh, by a guy named John Frame entitled Doctrine of the Christian Life, where he unpacks this particular commandment along with the other ten and all of their modern-day implications as you try to flesh that out. Um, And I would point you to all of that. But for the purpose of this morning, I'm going to assume, and this might be a bit of an assumption. I don't think so. But I'm going to assume that most of us in this room are not guilty of having taken the life of another human being um, in, in the broad sense of the sixth commandment. If Jesus had stopped there, I would argue, most of us would feel pretty good about our moral record in light of the sixth commandment. But Jesus doesn't stop there says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That, that Jesus says it's not just about killing, uh, unlawful killing in the physical sense. You, you can't just say, I've never murdered anyone, and so I'm good to go. Right? This thinking exists in the world that you live in. Um, you can get into conversations with people and ask them, why will you go to heaven? And they'll 
vocalize the response of, I'm a good person. And if you were to take them through the Ten Commandments, they would begin to unpack for you the things that they haven't done. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't physically been with a woman other than my wife. I haven't murdered someone. I haven't pulled a trigger on someone physically. And the list goes on. People will justify their moral record before God based on the external physical manifestation And yet Jesus says it goes beyond external manifestations of sin to the heart. It's a heart issue. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way. By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. 1 John 3.15 puts it very clearly. It says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so we're talking about hatred, malice, cruelty, violence, anger toward other people. And John says if that's you, if there's a pattern of that in your life, you do not have eternal life abiding in you. Now that's unbelievably sobering if you're a person who battles with anger like me. And here's the deal. If you've got that going on at a heart level, hatred toward others, malice toward others, anger toward others, you you can't hide it. You, You might be able to hide it from circles of people, but there are people on planet Earth who are going to see that, probably the people who are closest to you. If I were to tell you that I really battle with anger, that that's an area that God's sanctifying me in, most of you in the room would probably go, are you serious, dude? Like, you you seem pretty even keel. You seem pretty mellow at the end of the day. I, I'm not sure I'm buying it. If, if that's where you land when you look at me, let me encourage you to go grab a cup of coffee with my wife and talk to her about what she encounters from time to time as I blow up over some of the stupidest things on planet earth. This is one of the most convicting sermons for me to be preaching because it speaks to my own heart quite possibly more than any other sermon that I preached in, in recent history. People see it. You and I, we're not fooling anyone. And here's why you can't hide hatred, why you can't hide anger, why you can't hide malice in your heart. Because according to Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, we're told that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That when you feel hate, when you feel anger, when you feel malice toward others, it's really hard not to express that with your lips. That a hateful heart expresses hateful words. That a malicious heart expresses malicious words. James 3.8 puts it really clearly. The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. One of my favorite chapters of the Bible, strangely. Very poetic. That the tongue that we use to bless God is the same tongue that we use to speak curses toward his image bearers. This is what Jesus is driving at in verse 22. Insulting your brother, calling him a fool. That the language of insult in the original Greek is that of attacking the intelligence of a man. And the language of calling someone a fool in the original Greek is that of attacking the piety of a man. So um, one is an attack on the head. The other is an attack on the heart. And Jesus says both are poison. One of my favorite bands is a band by the name of Brand New. They're really hard to Google. If you just type in the words Brand New, you're probably not going to find a band, right? So... Really hard for you to even find this song that I'm about to share a lyric from. But there's a song that they play entitled, Play Crack the Sky. And the, the verse itself goes like this. I think they stole this from James 3. It says, Your tongue is a rudder 
that steers the whole ship, sends your words past your lips, or keeps them safe behind your teeth. But the wrong words will strand you, come off course while you sleep, sweep your boat out to sea, or dash to bits on the reef. The idea is that your words, your tongue, which are a manifestation of what's going on in your heart, can actually destroy other people and can destroy you in the process. Proverbs 12, 18 says this, rash words are like sword thrusts, that um, there's a sense in which words really do kill, as the Bible says, that for some, our words are murderous. But our words don't have just the power to destroy others. They have the power to destroy us as well. They can sweep us out to sea. They can dash us to bits. That's what I think Jesus is driving at here in verse 22. For some, our words driven by the anger of our hearts internally are a glaring indication that we don't belong to him, which is where we get the language of the hell of fire. But there's also a temporal destruction that takes place in our lives when hate sways our hearts. You ever been there? You ever battled embitterment at a heart level, hatred towards someone or something at a heart level, anger towards someone or something at a heart level. It has a way of sucking the life out of you, does it not? It has a way of just draining the life out of you. So crippling and so destructive to us and to others that Jesus says in verse 23, so in light of this, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to him with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now there there are a number of differing opinions as to what these verses mean, and, and I'm not going to get into some of the peripheral little little details. Um, what I'd rather do is just address the two things that are agreed upon by practically every commentary that I've read on this passage, which is this. Number one, Jesus is not interested in unrepentant worship. That oftentimes we completely miss the point. Just like the Pharisees, we set aside repentance in the name of religious duty in the name of religious ceremony. We'll spend an hour in our Bibles, yet have a a relationship completely unreconciled. We'll put on our Sunday best, allow our hearts to remain corrupt. We think that that God is impressed with our time in the Scriptures, with our church attendance. D.A. Carson says this about verses 23 and 24. He says, Men love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, and love, but Jesus will have none of it. That Jesus is saying, I'm after all of your heart. I'm coming after all of it in a relentless pursuit. He's saying, don't be a Pharisee. Don't proclaim his excellency with your lips while your heart is far from him. It doesn't even make sense, does it? That, that we would profess to believe in a reconciling gospel, yet remain unreconciled in our relationships to others while we worship our reconciling God. Isn't that strange? Yet we, we do that. We find ourselves doing that. Jesus is driving us to repentance rather than external duties of the Christian life. He's saying, absolutely, yes and amen. Let's spend some time together. Open your Bible. Like, come and be, be with the people of God, but not at the expense of repentance, at the expense of reconciling with God and with others. 
And then secondly, coming out of verses 25 and 26, Jesus considers our repentance an extremely urgent matter. In the legal metaphor that you see in those two verses, Jesus is driving at the idea that your anger will absolutely dash you to bits on the reef. That hate and anger will suck the life out of you. That it is emphatically a death sentence. And it just might be to your eternal destruction if indeed it proves that you don't belong to God. Now, the problem is we see a pastor like this and we think, seriously? It's just anger, bro. It's just me getting upset every once in a while. And yet Jesus says it's murder. It's destructive to you and to everyone around you. Steve Timmis, in his commentary on this passage, puts it this way. He says, When, in the quiet of our hearts, we despise and belittle someone, it is no different in God's eyes from quietly spiking their drink with arsenic. Now, here's why many of us don't feel the weight of of Jesus' words this morning. If you do, praise God, the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. Many of us, the reason we don't experience um, the the weight of words like this when we encounter them in the scriptures is that we've become um, experts at justifying our end, our our sin, uh, experts at justifying our anger. And the question begs to be answered, are there times when anger can be justified? That's a good question, right, in regard to the scriptures. Can anger be justified? Are there moments when you can actually be angry to the glory of God? And I think the answer is yes, that Jesus expressed righteous anger, righteous indignation, and yet he remained sinless. Uh, If you go to uh, the accounts of Jesus in the Gospels when he drove the money changers out of the the temple, that's one of the most famous moments of Jesus' righteous indignation. When he healed the withered man's hand on the Sabbath in Mark chapter 3, Jesus became angry with the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. That Jesus himself, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 17, actually says to the Pharisees, you blind fools. That Jesus uses the word that he tells us not to use in Matthew chapter 5. Same gospel account. There are times when anger can be justified. And if you're a Christian, you can probably begin to put together your list of what that looks like. It's right to be angry to experience righteous indignation toward racism. It's, it's okay to feel righteous indignation toward injustice in the world, toward human trafficking. There are a number of, of moments where righteous indignation can creep up in your heart, and it's absolutely God-honoring in the same way that Jesus experienced that. But here's the deal. Our, our bent typically is that we respond like the lawyer. We look for the loophole to determine that any moment of anger is a moment of righteous indignation, right? All of a sudden, surely if God were, were clothed in my flesh right now, he would respond the same way. He would feel the same way. This is justified that someone calls out our anger, and the response typically becomes, at least for me, yeah, but. Right? You seem to be dealing with some road rage today. Yeah, but you, you didn't see that guy just pull out in front of me like a bat out of Hades. You, you really don't seem to like your neighbor, do you? Yeah, but your neighbor doesn't hammer nails into wood as he works on his deck at 5.30 in the morning every Saturday. Honey, stop raising your voice. That's no way to talk to your kids. Yeah, but 
you don't see the fact that there's no respect from them toward me when I act cool, calm, and collected. That if we're honest, yeah, but are two words that many of us use, and oftentimes when we use them, they're communicating, I'm about to lawyer you. That's about to go down. I'm notorious for this. Again, just ask my wife. I usually have my yeah, but response ready before she even finishes her statement. I'm already thinking forward. Some of you do that, and that's what you need to repent of just like me. We all do it. From from the most laid-back person in the room to the most hot-tempered person in the room, we all have our moments that Jesus says are liable to judgment, just like murder. So the question for us this morning, before we can even move forward into anything else would be very simply, can we all just own the fact that we've been guilty of anger at some point in our lives? Most of us since the last time we graced this auditorium a week ago. And interestingly, the goal is not just to respond well to anger when it manifests itself. You notice that? That, that Jesus doesn't say your anger's fine. Just find out, figure out a way to deal with it in a way that honors the Lord. Uh, one of our Uh, daughter's favorite shows. She turns one this Saturday. Um, She loves Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. Um, And there is uh, typically a a lesson to be learned, something to be grasped from each of these episodes. And they have one on anger. And there's always a song attached so that you can remember it really well and so that you can drive the parents absolutely berserk. And the song for the anger episode goes like this. Daniel sings, When you feel so mad that you want to roar, you got to take a deep breath and count to four. One, two, three, four. Right? And that's supposed to to help you. And maybe it does. Like, I've actually tried that because, like I said, that's one of my issues. And so I've actually... You know, I, I don't sing it out loud because I think my wife will think I'm a looney tune if I do that. But, but I've walked through Daniel Tiger's steps, in, and there's something about that, that that actually can be helpful. There's nothing wrong with dealing with anger when it comes to the surface, right? But the problem is that that strategy doesn't address the fact that anger came to the surface in the first place. That there's something going on below the surface of the heart that needs to be addressed. And so for the remainder of our time, I want to get below the dirt just a little bit this morning and address what typically drives us to anger uh, amongst the other sins that you find in the scriptures, whether it be uh, lust or you fill in the blank with with whatever uh, you see above the surface. Jesus says it's one thing to get the external surface level manifestations of sin under control. That's one thing. It's an altogether different thing to address those things that are going on below the surface at a heart level, the attitudes, the motives, the emotions that drive us. For most of us, if those things, our attitudes, our emotions, our motives could be broadcast on a screen, we'd all go banging on the door of the police station asking to be put in a witness protection program, would we not? Like if the world could just see what's going on below the surface at a heart level with us, it'd be devastating to most of us. Yet the reality is that God sees everything on the surface and below the surface. The cosmic hide-and-go-seek is not a game that God's interested in playing. It bores him. He's too good at it. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're feeling. He knows what's driving you to do what you do, to say what you say. If we're honest, most of us deal with surface-level manifestations of sin, and we never get below the dirt 
to the root of the problem. And it makes sense, right? Because what's on the surface is what other people see. So if we can just maintain that, if we can just fix the, the external manifestations of sin in our lives, we'll be received well by other people. People will view us well. It, it, it's, a, it's one of those realities where we've completely missed it and we've chosen not to acknowledge that our sin is against God. We feel the need and the pressure to clean up our junk, but only that that's visible to others. And like the Pharisees, it becomes about externals more than internal transformation. Remember, God is in a relentless pursuit for all of you, not just the, the shell of you, you might say. We might say, look, Jesus, I haven't murdered anyone. And Jesus says, that's great. I have a righteousness that exceeds that, that exceeds your externalism. I have a righteousness in mind that works its way from the inside out. See, what happens when we focus on externals is that we trick ourselves into thinking that we're actually growing more and more like Jesus, that we're actually experiencing sanctification when really and truly what's happening is we're trading one surface-level manifestation of sin for another one without actually addressing anything that's driving that at the root. I'll give you an example. All right, when I was in seminary, it was a big deal for me uh, when I would take an exam or write a paper as to what the grade was going to be that I received. Because there was a part of me that really wrestled during uh, my time as a full-time student with the gospel being Jesus plus Jamie's grades. That's where identity rests. Jesus plus, if Jamie can just do well on a paper or an exam, he will be validated in life. And so again, go ask my wife how I responded every time I got a good grade and every time I got a bad grade and what that looked like for me because my identity uh, was in a crisis mode, uh, battling to believe that the gospel is Jesus alone, not Jesus plus my grades. Now, here's what happens. If you, if you pass your classes, you eventually end the program, right? And so it would be really easy for me to then look and go, man, I don't struggle with identity and grades at all. That's not a problem for me in the slightest. The problem is that if it's not addressed at at its root, it's just going to transfer itself onto the next thing. It's going to become the next external manifestation in my life uh, based on what's driving that underneath the surface. So that now it's no longer about grades, but it's about how well was that sermon received? Um, How well did I cast vision in, in this particular gathering of our partners? How well did I lead that staff meeting last week? And it becomes those things that then drive identity because there's still an issue under the surface that's not being addressed. And I'm going to give away what that is, and then I'm going to unpack some of these things in just a moment. For me, it's approval. So if I had to assess myself and say, what's one of the greatest root idols in my life? It would be an approval idol. I need you to think well of me. It's not enough that God thinks well of me in Christ. And so the battle for me is Jesus plus the approval of man, which manifests itself above the surface in good grades and, and can then be transferred to good sermons. And then as, as we continue on in parenting, good parenting and fill in the blanks. And I could just do that until I die and never address what's going on at the root. Does that make sense? And so what I want to do this morning as we close is just unpack some of uh, what Tim Keller calls root idols. I find his work to be incredibly helpful here. Those things that drive us. Uh, 
toward the surface level manifestations. And so I'm going to address this uh, under the banner of anger, but you could, you could plug lust in here. You could plug um, a, a number of things that you see kind of rising on the surface in terms of sin in your life. But for the sake of this passage, I think it would be helpful because Jesus says it's not just about external manifestations. It's not just pulling the trigger on your brother and committing murder. At, at the heart, there are some things going on that need to be dealt with. So let me address this idea of root idols very briefly. Keller argues that there are four major root idols under the dirt that drive us to surface-level manifestations of sin. I don't think this is an exhaustive list. I think that we could add more to this list, but I do think this is a helpful starting point. He argues that those root idols are power, approval, comfort, and control. So let me kind of unpack that for a moment. If you, see, uh, if you seek power... Okay, if, that, if that's uh, one of those things under the surface at the root that drives you, if that's an idol for you, if you seek success or influence, then your greatest nightmare is likely going to be humiliation. Assess yourself there. Is that your greatest nightmare? See, here's what happens. If power is a root idol for you, then anger likely rears its ugly head when people humiliate you, when people make you look weak. When people make you look like a failure, for some of us in the room, the light bulb's going off, and you're going, I have a, a rude idol, and it's power. And that's very different to notice than to just address, I'm angry all the time. I need to stop being angry. If you seek approval, affirmation, acceptance, love, then your greatest nightmare is likely rejection. And so anger, if this is you, likely rears its ugly head when people exclude you, when people reject you, when people treat you like an outsider. And maybe that's a root idol for some of us. If you seek comfort, convenience, enjoyment, pleasure, if that's what you're after, if that's what you're making ultimate, then your greatest nightmare is likely stress, demands, and anger likely rears its ugly head when people demand a lot from you. When people add unnecessary stress to your life. When people inconvenience you. When people make your life unpleasant. For some of us, maybe that's what's going on under the surface. And lastly, if you seek control, mastery, certainty in all situations, if that's what you make ultimate, then your greatest nightmare is likely uncertainty, anxiety. This is all the type A's in the room right here. And anger likely rears its ugly head, if that's you, when people bring chaos, when people bring disorder into your perfectly controlled utopia. What does that look like for you? What's below the surface for you? What root idols lurk beneath? What root idols are deeply embedded in your heart? That's what Jesus is after in this morning's passage. See, here's the beauty of the gospel. This is what we mean by preaching the gospel to yourself. This is why it's so crucial. The root idol of power is weakened as we submit to an all-powerful God whose spirit indwells us. That in those moments when you feel humiliated, if you have a root idol of power that you're battling, in those moments you feel made to look, look weak. You don't have to let anger 
win. You can look to Jesus who was humiliated for you. That God's power is made perfect in weakness, not in your success, not in your achievement. That the root idol of approval is weakened as we rejoice in God's gracious approval of us in Christ. In those moments when you feel rejected, you don't have to let anger win. You can preach the gospel to yourself. Jesus was rejected so that you could be accepted perfectly by God. That God loves you in Christ. That you're approved of perfectly in Christ. That the root idol of comfort is weakened as we look to God as our ultimate source of comfort. In those moments that you feel inconvenienced, stressed, You don't have to let anger win. You can preach Psalm 1611 to yourself. In your presence, God, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That the root idol of control is weakened as we surrender to God's ultimate control. That in those moments when you feel great uncertainty, great anxiety, you don't have to let anger win. You can trust in the sovereignty of God that he actually does have you in the palm of his hands. And the scriptures become a weapon to do battle against your root idols. Do you see that difference between digging down to the root of our idolatrous hearts on the one level and on the other hand, seeking to modify our behavior on the surface like the Pharisees? Look, Jesus, we don't, we don't kill people. We're good. Do you see the difference between the two? There's a drastic difference there. And the truth is the below the dirt stuff is much, much more difficult, is it not? That's why Jesus is saying this is a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's saying to God, do the painful work of chiseling me more and more into the image of Jesus. All of me, not just the shell, not just the outside. All of me, God, take it and mold it and conform it into your image in a way that glorifies you and brings me more joy. I'll leave you with this quote from Steve Timmis as we close this morning. He says this, following Jesus means that we must face up to our sin and namely our self-righteous, self-obsessed anger for what it is. But what we gain in him is infinitely more precious than the crippled pride we try to protect. Jesus, the one who convicts us of the guilt of our angry hearts, also secured the verdict of our acquittal. There's the gospel. Our only hope lies in what he has done to reconcile us with God through his death and resurrection. It's his work alone that makes us able to love our brothers and sisters, to forgive them, and to ask forgiveness of them. That the gospel empowers the heart change. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.